Spending time in classrooms is one of the most impactful ways we can support teachers and grow our schools. But all of that classroom work can result in tons of documentation that really goes nowhere. If you've got piles of sticky notes all over your desk and random collections of thoughts in all of your apps, it's time to consolidate. ConnectHub.io is a platform created by coaches for coaches. It's designed to help you organize your notes as you meet with educators and get powerful data on your impact in their classrooms. You can also use this information to support their professional learning and growth. ConnectHub.io includes great features to help you protect the coach-teacher relationship by providing different levels of account access for sharing only what you want with administrators. You can also customize reports to share specific kinds of information with your admin. This is such a great software for coaches. Check it out today at ConnectHub.io to simplify your instructional coaching with a free trial. As a literacy coach at an elementary school, I spent so much time trying to find the perfect supplemental resources for my teachers. That's why I am so excited to share a special resource with you today. Decodable texts are essential for our students who are working on mastering phonics in primary grades especially. I have come across the sweetest decodable books that I love and my kindergarten daughter loves them too. They're called Express Readers. Each book has a complete storyline, includes fun and funny characters like Bug and Duck, and the stories are engaging and increasing complexity over time, as do the words and sentence structures on each page. Sticky words are identified in each book to help children with words they aren't able to decode yet, or those with irregular spelling patterns. They're the perfect resource for giving students at your school the practice they need in applying phonics skills. Head to expressreaders.org and visit the Decodable Books page. There you can download a quick keys guide with teaching tips for each book, including teaching sticky word mapping. You can also get free sample decodables sent to your address. Head to expressreaders.org if you're building your phonics instruction and you're ready for some really great readers. You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey coach, when we think of formative assessments, what comes to mind? seems like the answer I get most often is exit slips, but there is so much more to this really important idea. And it's an important part of this teaching and learning cycle like we've been talking about. So today, my guest, Steve Ventura, is going to help us dig into the idea of formative assessment, what it is and how we can help teachers use it better. So I am so excited to welcome my guest, Steve Ventura, to the podcast. Welcome, Steve. Hello. How are you doing today? <laughs> good, good. Good morning. It's great to see you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Um, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? They may already know who you are, probably, but it would be great if you would tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing the work you're doing, what kind of work you're focusing on right now. Sure. It's Steve Ventura with Advanced Collaborative Solutions. And for the last about 14 years, I've been a full-time education consultant. I started off, Chrissy, as a very humble PE teacher. And then I got my master's in special ed and then administration. But things took a a really amazing turn in around 2007 or 8 when I started working for um, a um, company called the Leadership and Learning Center with Dr. Douglas Reeves. 
And that's when I really started learning more about what do really good instructional leaders do and what are really good collaborative protocols look like. And then from there, I transitioned to Corwin Professional Learning and started working with Professor John Hattie with the Visible Learning Research. And that really added so much value to um, all the things we do. I've seen you refer to it, too. I know you're familiar with it. So anyway, and that just led to um, a book about um, collective efficacy and, and um, collaboration called Achievement Teams. And now I get to meet great people like you. That's so nice. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so with the thing we're going to talk about today is something that I know you've written about, and I'm excited to hear your expertise on. Um, whenever you talk about formative assessment, what all does that include? You know, there's so many different iterations of assessment. Everybody has confusion. Like a lot of districts I work with say they have formative assessment, but they're just three benchmark assessments a year. So they're actually summative. Um, and a lot of times people get confused with the with end of unit assessments as opposed to short cycle assessments. And, and the way I write about it, it's I think formative assessments has so many different, you know, um, definitions. But the one I really focused on is giving kids a small set of items to determine how much impact the teachers are having on the learning and then reassessing that after they intervene with instructional strategies. And so it's like a bookend for me. It's like a pre-post assessment, but there it's very it's very finite. It's maybe seven to nine items of a particular learning target that teachers want to know um, if the kids are actually getting it. And then that information, the data, the analysis helps teachers determine if they need to um, adjust their teaching. And then um, classic pre-post, give it again to see how much more progress there was made. Yeah, I, I think that that sometimes whenever we get stuck is we're not really using formative assessments effectively to to impact our teaching, right? We're just kind of giving all these tests because maybe they're part mm -hmm. of our curriculum, um, but we're not getting value from it. So whenever we do that, I'm, you know, we're talking more about maybe like a summative assessment. Can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit more about what summative looks like or what um, an interim assessment looks like and explain maybe some examples of different types of assessments? Well, yeah, I, first of all, I think, I think American students are way over tested. I think yes. they're under assessed. So some of the assessments again, are usually at the end of instruction, Chrissy, you know, when you're done with a unit, when you're done with the school year, when you're done with a particular lesson, and then there's a test. Usually the difference between that and interim is that many districts I work in, I was a superintendent, we had interim assessments for mm -hmm. a year at the end of each quarter. And that was better than just waiting for the state test, but it still wasn't enough. It wasn't frequent enough. So then we started going to more short cycle assessments and that was giving really real time feedback on our teaching. So instead of waiting at the end of an interim assessment or a benchmark, mm -hmm. it would be too late to apply corrective teaching because then the next interim is coming. What I love about the formative assessment piece is that, and this is very, uh, very controversial for especially secondary teachers where formative assessments shouldn't be graded um, because those results are used feedback to the teacher and the way they're, they're teaching. But many times they get graded and it's almost academic malpractice, especially if you're using the data to evaluate the impact of your teaching. Mm -hmm. But so you have these formative short cycle assessments. Interim is, is better than summative, but then summative is just a state test. You know, Texas has big time accountability. Big time. And everything comes down to that once a year test. 
and then people are judged by that once a year test. And I still, I think these more, um, more compact assessments give teachers a better idea about how much progress they're making because it may not show up on a state test, but it could show up on these internal local, you know, formative assessments. And so, mm-hmm. um, and all three are fine, by the way. I mean, I give short cycle assessments in interim, so they would be better on the state test. Mm-hmm. So there's a nice vertical alignment there, but yeah. performative is really informing teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they all have different purposes. They all have a place. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I totally agree. We do way too much summative assessment. And then we're looking throughout the year towards this long-term assessment. But we don't really even know, even if that's the goalpost, which I personally hope that wouldn't be, but it often is. We are not seeing how far away we are from that throughout the year, even whenever people are, are you know, right. trying to use that as like their marker of success or how do you know how far away these kids are and what you need to do? We're not adjusting our instruction along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking as an instructional coach, you probably see um, all these amazing opportunities that fall to the wayside because people aren't really skilled at analyzing mm-hmm. the data that they have, or even the quality of the assessment is so vague, it doesn't even give people who give the assessment enough information to determine mm-hmm. if it's uh, if it's something that they can actually do. I've seen this where I work with a lot of teachers, they're very compliant, they'll do what they're told, they're just great people. But nobody gives them enough direction about how to even write an assessment or interpret the assessment results. So it's, mm-hmm. it's maximized. And sometimes again, the, the assessments are so shallow and surface, Chrissy, we could never even make a determination or infer if we're, uh, if we're actually ma- making some impact there. So That's very true. Yeah. And it's yeah. not really tied. I've seen that a lot. It's not really tied to what you taught. It doesn't really match what you taught. No, we no. see like, like, here's my learning target. Here's the lesson where the kids do something unrelated. Mm-hmm. And here's my assessment that doesn't match either of those things. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, um, oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, no, go ahead, Chrissy. I just was wondering about your short cycle assessments, about how frequently whenever you move from more, you know, just focusing on summative assessments to adding in these short cycle assessments, what did that look like about how often? Yeah. It's a great question. So the frequency I always get asked, like, you know, in, in our book, it's a pre post assessment system, Chrissy. It's mm-hmm. like, here's the pre assessment, here's the post assessment. That's called the cycle. So everybody asks, how many cycles should we do? And my first answer is, well, as many times as you're willing to evaluate your impact. Mm-hmm. I don't try to give a number, yeah. but then, you know, when people press like, well, how many times I'm like, well, certainly not one, but not 10. I mean, um, and the clients that we work with across the country, when they're doing achievement teams or short cycle assessments, they will usually do four to seven cycles a year. Okay. And, um, but it's got to be doable. Our newer clients will try three or four for piloting. Mm-hmm. And when they start feeling more comfortable about it, they'll do more. But, but you know, a lot of the information we got about these pre and post assessments came from James Popham, who wrote a book called Teach Better, Test Better. And he's a retired professor emeritus from UCLA. He is the one that sparked my interest in these pre-post assessments. The guy's a psychometrician. He knows a lot about assessments. So sometimes it's not how many you do, Chrissy. It's the quality of the items mm-hmm. and the data that they generate. Three or four could be amazing if it's really good quality information. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, remember, those assessments are only as good. I mean, the inferences we make are only as good as the assessments we, we administer. So, mm-hmm. but again, I mean... You know, there's internal formative assessment too, where it doesn't have to be pre and post, just teachers give informal assessments all day. But this would be like for a horizontal team, like yes, three, 
three fourth grade teachers who want to give the same pre and post and work together as a as a, a horizontal uh, collaborative. But uh, but that's how we usually use it. Mm -hmm. More of like a common assessment. So we it's can all get together. Assessment. Yeah. And look at data together, have a conversation about what we see happening across our grade level and then share, you know, ideas and strengths yeah. and say, oh, this is something that's working for my kids that you can try out and ask questions and really have that yeah. PLC. Yes, exactly. So I, I, you, I didn't even say common formative assessments, but that's what they usually are. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how we use them when we, when we work with our client schools. But, and I think when, you know, it depending on the the mindset of the people we work with. I mean, eighty to ninety percent of the clients we have see the value in this because they, for the first time, they can slow down and go deeper with fewer learning targets, instead of superficially covering everything, and then making some amazing determinations about what is the next steps for progress for our students. You know, and. In testing, there's 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 achievement and progress. Both are very important. But sometimes when kids make progress, they may never be an A student, but they're progressing. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather have kids who could progress more than one year and one instructional year mm -hmm. than just, you know, know how to play school and get A's over and over and over again, not, not diminishing that either. But I think these formative assessments are designed to accelerate learning. And we have a lot of kids because of post-COVID yeah. that really need to double the speed of progress. So there's so many advantages to it. You know, you mentioned, you've mentioned grades a couple of times and I'm glad that you brought it up because I actually spoke to a coach recently and this is going to be an episode on the podcast that's coming out the week after this one um, where she was working with teachers and they were saying, but I take, I already have grades in my grade book. Why do I need to have assessments on top of the grades? You know, what what is the difference? And they couldn't understand the difference really between an assessment that's focused on specific things is I'm thinking you probably bundle them alongside like units or chunks of, of standards that go together. And then you're right, probably right. organizing it by standard and like specific skill rather than an overall grade, which could be about a lot of different things. <laughs> so it's such misconception, right? So mm -hmm. grading really is just an announcement. Like here's what you've done. Those are summative grades, by the way. Mm -hmm. So, yes. um, the the and grading is the most emotional one of the most emotional topics in education right now right so a lot of times when i work with teams and they give pre and post and i say please don't grade the pre-assessment but you know what if you're going to teach and then give the post assessment okay you can grade that if, the, if grading's mm -hmm. your thing but you know what kids need more than grades they need feedback yes. they need feedback that's accurate and fair and timely and understandable and students need to be understanding that not everything they do should be graded. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is that teachers grade the way they were graded. Yeah. So everything gets a grade. And then you know what happens? Kids don't want to do anything because they want to know if this counts. And then we have to go through all that, like everything in my class counts. But yeah. if they don't see a letter grade with the assessment, they, they lose it. As a matter of fact, I think Dylan Willem um, is an amazing um, author. And I think he wrote an article called Inside the Black Box. And he had this one thing that was so interesting. He said, look, you want to know how dependent kids are in grades. Let's say, Chrissy, you have 30 kids in your class. They all turn in 30 assignments. Half of the assignments, you gave them a grade and feedback, right, on the paper, mm -hmm. grade and feedback. The other half of the kids didn't get a grade, just feedback. And you watch what happens between the 15 and the 15. The kids with the grade will not read your feedback. They'll only look at the grade and put it away. 
but the kids that just have feedback and no grade, they're going to ask you like, where's my grade? And you would say things like, well, read my feedback, you know, because you, you, so they're so programmed. This is why mm-hmm. teachers get frustrated. Yes. But I mean, um, normally I would be using the pre-assessment as nothing more than feedback directly to the students. So they could do error analysis with those those results, do some really good, um, amazing, engaging instruction between the pre and post. But I would just tell people who are really embedded in grades, like, if you do the cycle, then you can, you have enough information to give a grade the second time. But the first time, mm-hmm. we're really using that to make inferences about our practice. Interesting. It's so emotional. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yes, I agree. And people are people are very feel very strongly about grades. And that's one of the issues with grades is, OK, you bring your grade book. I bring my grade book. And we look at we're looking at two different things, even mm-hmm. if we grade the same assignments, because open ended assignments, yeah. even if we're using a rubric, I mean, you really have to be calibrated to use a tool like that in the same way. So we you can't use grades as as data necessarily for that purpose to see where no. your kids are because exactly. we're all doing different things with grades. You got it. I mean, I think the same work by the same kid ought to get the same grade, even if the teacher's different. Mm-hmm. And but people have a hard time coming to consensus. What's mm-hmm. a D in your class could be an A in my class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's unfair to the kids. Yes, it is. And that's a whole other issue, right? <laughs> but that is why those are not yeah. assessments that we can use as common assessments, no. right? They're not, and right. they're not really formative either, because what are you looking at? You're looking at mm-hmm. maybe a you know project that involves lots of different things, but unless you analyze it by little skill, it doesn't tell you what to do next. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and, the, and these short cycle assessments are really designed to, um, really determine what skills and concepts the students actually know, you know, and you know what I'm talking about, just like, what's the verb and the standard and the noun phrase, like, that's what we should be assessing, like determine or analyze or summarize or explain how. Um, The other thing with these assessments, Chrissy, when we do this work with them is that they're very aligned to Webb's depth of knowledge. And we have to show teachers that certain items are assessed certain ways, Mm -hmm. like DOK one verbs, true, false, multiple choice, Mm-hmm. But DOK three verbs, short constructive response, non-traditional selective response, where there's more than one answer. A lot of the clients we work with didn't really know the difference between um, a lower level verb or a higher, more complex verb. Mm-hmm. And so then we show them item writing guidelines like, you know, DOK four, Chrissy can't be measured with true or false. It's impossible. Right. Right. It's so complex. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that we focus on with formative assessment. And we always tell teachers like um, DOK levels are not, um, you know, for kids, it's not based on well, we give only DOK one test to kindergartners and then it goes up as the grade levels. They're not developmental. All kids should be exposed to that level of complexity. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. but um But I really like when we show teachers like, you know, there is a strategy for assessments and you know what happens. Then they look at the assessments they've been giving and they look at our guidelines and say, wait a second, I'm using the wrong format for this item. And they make a couple of minor changes. And then all of a sudden, if they do create their own assessments, they're very valuable, uh, valid and reliable. I mean, so we I don't remember ever taking a class before I got my teaching credential on how to write really good formative assessments. No, I know I don't, they didn't have a class on it. I know that it was a part of a class or two of mine, but I don't know how 
good it was. Um, but it, I, but at the actual like creation process, I probably got to create no, like one as no. part of like a other project. You know, you have to write a lesson plan and your lesson plans are 75 pages long in college. And then exactly. that's one piece of your lesson plan. And so it's so um, removed from the reality of the classroom that it, it wasn't very impactful. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't know what a question stem was. I didn't know where distractors mm-hmm. were. Yeah. It wasn't until I started getting into that. Um, mm-hmm. Then we started helping people design high quality assessments. Like all mm-hmm. answers should be plausible, but there should only be one right mm-hmm. answer. Well, yeah. what we see is really random selection processes for students. Um, the other thing is that, um, you know, the students shouldn't be able to easily eliminate any of those choices. They should really be deep thoughting, like which is the best answer. So there's so many valuable things, you know, mm-hmm. we can do with these with these formative assessments for sure. And just um, showing people item writing guidelines, like what's the best way to assess the verb identify or mm-hmm. analyze, you know, what, what are the best, um, you know, ways to write that assessment? Yeah, I, I think you're you're right in that. Um, I, I worked with a lot of teachers as a campus coach, creating our own assessments. And sometimes the the verb is not aligned. Like we talked about earlier, no. you have a learning target, you have a lesson, you have an assessment, they're not aligned to each other at all. No. Um, we're talking about describing in our target, we're actually having kids maybe identify during the lesson. And then the question yeah. is asking them to explain something. And so we're all over the place. Um, and we don't really have good alignment so that we're not teaching or assessing what we think we are. Well, you um, have it right. Yeah. I mean, that's an example of what I call deficit instruction, where the standard might say explain and analyze, but the teachers are assessing whether they can identify and find. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. like two levels of complexity below what those actual skills are. Mm-hmm. So we have to be very careful that we understand what skills and concepts we're assessing. And then the items are completely matched to that. And then, yeah. you know, like then you have something that's valid and reliable, and then teachers can make super informative um, inferences about where the students actually are. Mm -hmm. And I think just to say, I think formative assessment is the best way to overcome some of the issues we had with COVID. I think we should be doing more of it and less testing Mm -hmm. and just assessing kids in in chunks along the way where it's um, more frequent and then the teachers get way more timely information um, before it's too late, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because we hear a lot of, um, you know, there's a COVID learning gap. Kids are very behind. The kids don't have the skills they used to. But then whenever we get right down to it, they don't always know exactly what Mm -hmm. they do have and don't have Mm -hmm. because it's all just very overwhelming. So yeah, if we can get some better information about where our kids are along the way, then we can maybe target those areas and those students who need certain things more. I had a teacher once tell me, I'm targeting everything. <laughs> I don't know that's not how a target works. <laughs> so well, we have to talk and, a little bit about, you know, well, what do we what does it mean to target yeah. something and why are we targeting it? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, Chrissy, another really, really amazing thing that happens with formative assessments is then the teachers become better consumers of writing learning intentions and success mm-hmm. criteria. Teacher clarity has a 0.75 effect size. You know, when teachers write success criteria and share it with their students, mm-hmm. that's essentially the the assessment. They have literally written the assessment and then that's what they teach the kids to do between the pre and post. Mm -hmm. So if the kids can go through the three to five or six criteria for success based on a single learning target, 
they're going to, they're going to crush their post-assessment or any assessment if there's a little bit of pre-teaching before they give the assessment. Mm -hmm. So you can see, like, uh, I know you're familiar with this too, but you can see what a great segue. You start off with learning intentions and success criteria, and then you assess those. It's completely aligned. Mm -hmm. So it's a good way. Everybody knows what everybody's trying to learn, right? Yeah. The kids know, yeah. the teacher knows, and they know what it'll look like when they have learned it, um, it. like those PLC questions. And then we can actually yeah. figure out, okay, now that we know who knows it, we can know who doesn't know it. And we know what we need to work on next because it's all you great. Got it. Yeah. That's it. So what are some of the other common mistakes that you're seeing whenever teachers try to implement formative assessments? Because we're talking about a lack of alignment here mm-hmm. um, and probably not frequently enough. So what other issues are you seeing pop up? Um, the length. So sometimes um, what what differentiates a formative assessment to a summative assessment is formative assessments are more about content chunking, mm-hmm. like really, really going from a floodlight to a flashlight. Like I really want to assess this single skill. Mm-hmm. Um, and but teachers have the curse of the conscientious. They're so professional. They want to assess everything. All of a sudden, the formative assessment turns into more of like a 40 question test. And so we see people trying to do too much with formative, like it doesn't need that many items, especially if you want to see if the teaching was impactful. Um, The other thing is that the assessments that are given, again, are misaligned. Um, These are some common misconceptions about this. And then a lot of people believe that the only way you can assess kids, even with the um, more complex verbs like DLK3s and 4s, is through short constructive response. That's certainly the best way. But if you write really good question stems and multiple choice items, you can still be extremely effective, even assessing um, more complex verbs or skills. So these are some things that we go over again with people like, listen, we know that um, we need kids to do short constructive response and extended constructive response, Mm -hmm. but you can still assess those areas with some really well-written selective response items. So there's a little myth that you can't really assess those with anything else but writing, but you can't if you, if you're thoughtful about how you design them. So I think the length is an issue. And sometimes I think um, the fact that we can use um, selective response or matching or true false, even with DOKs twos and threes, um, Kids can still write answers, but you can still assess them with um, some pretty good accuracy. And especially if you don't have a lot of time to score, Chrissy, like the teachers Mm -hmm. I work with, like, listen, I know they need to write. I get it. But if you want to get results back right away, I don't want you to spend your whole evening scoring these really long assessments. Like, it's got to be that you can just look at them and say, boom, that's Mm -hmm. that's scored. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I'm also glad that you brought up a few minutes ago the, the plausibility of answer choices. You know, I remember mm-hmm. whenever I first started teaching, there was often an answer that was just not even in the realm of reasonableness on the big test. You know, whenever I started teaching, it was the first year of tax and uh, in, in Texas. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> I took toss as a child. Tax was what was in place whenever I started teaching. And then towards the end of my career, it was star, which is currently what is what, they're, what they have. Star, mm-hmm. these you know more modern tests don't have ridiculous answers anymore. They are all reasonable. They all are related to the text. They're all from the text somewhere. If you're talking about reading specifically, they right. are related to that topic. They're not, you can't look at something and go, oh, that's not even about the same topic. Mark that out. It's, mm-hmm. it's connected. 
So kids have to really understand at a deeper level. So whenever teachers write answer choices, they instinctively want to put in a couple that are ridiculous that are throwaway answer choices. You haven't. But they're not. They're not there anymore. So I just, that's the research we've been reading. Like, don't waste a choice. Like Mm -hmm. the, the three are there and then one's completely supposed to be funny. Like, or, and the kids can literally eliminate that. And now they've already increased their probability of getting this correct, which we want them to be successful, Mm -hmm. but they still have to, they still have to weed through all four plausibilities Mm -hmm. and then see which one is the, which is the best one. Mm -hmm. It would almost be better just to give them three choices than four. If you're going to do that anyway, you know, yeah, (laughs) it doesn't really add anything to what they can do. And it doesn't match the assessment that they're going to see down the road. Well, you know, another really effective item to use for our formative assessments are the um, matching, where the premises, like say there's four premises, but there's five responses. Mm-hmm. So there's the students, instead of just four to four matches, yeah, you have more responses than mm-hmm. premises. And then the kids, again, really have to think clearly, like one of the responses I'm not going to be able to use. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, it's okay to have four and four, like, here's my premise, four statements, here's four answers, just draw a line matching. This is the way I went to school, right? But now all of a sudden, when teachers add more responses to the premises, the students have to really think clearly, like, Mm -hmm. one of these doesn't go with the other four. So there'll be four, but there's an extra one. And I love that process, because when the um, premise column has less items than the response column, there's some extra thinking happening. There. Yeah, for sure. I, lo- I love that. You're reminding me of something that I used to do with my teachers whenever we talked about like making inferences in a text or something along those lines. And we would have text evidence on one side yeah. and inference on the other and little cards. And I did also include extra, you know, choices that didn't match anything. And then kids had to go through and say which evidence is supported, you know, which inference is supported by which evidence and they would match it. Yeah. Um, but it's nice to know that that's something that you, that you all are doing too, that that was a good practice. Yeah. And I'll go back to your question. Like one other misconception or common error is when, um, when kids don't know any of the answers, Chrissy, I mean, I'm speaking from experience. Mm-hmm. We tend to focus on the longest one. Which one sticks out mm-hmm. the most could be the right answer. Right. So with formative assessments, all of the, all of the, choices need to be equal in length and that way it's better. But um, I just read some research where teachers unconsciously, I mean, not unconsciously, subconsciously want to make sure that the answer that's correct is clear. So they'll pick it. So they tend to make that one the longest Mm -hmm. and the kids are looking for the longest one. And so now they're all together on the same team. Yeah, it works out. So it's, <laughs> but yeah. not for what you so want. Yeah. It's really it's really interesting. That is interesting. And, and it then, does you know, make sense. Yeah. Honestly, the um it's super interesting. Of course, if this is the whole thing, let's put it all together. So the longest answer um is C. This mm-hmm. is everything that I know because the most common selection is yeah. C. So now the teacher made the correct answer C and it's the longest one. It sticks out the most. Mm-hmm. So equal and length distractors really add more quality um, to the assessments again. So we're talking about like, like premise um, mismatch items, these item writing guidelines. And a lot of teachers will tell me like, I never knew these rules about writing assessments. Like all of the choices should be in alphabetical order. So the kids can't find a pattern. 
Um, so really interesting um, stuff. You you opened up a couple of little things I never get a chance to talk about, but you Oh, asked. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love to get into the details because I really, yeah. it's strange, but I enjoyed writing assessments. As a campus coach, I, I feel like I spent a fair amount of time writing assessments, helping teachers look at the big summit of assessment and working backwards from mm -hmm. that and really yeah. analyzing it. And I feel like you're right is you don't really understand how that test works and how it's structured and how the choices work, unless you're trying to create something that does a similar or that is written in a similar structure, but for yeah. a shorter period of time and covering less, you know, content. Yeah. So, so funny, Chrissy, like I never thought my pathway would be really getting into the formative assessment piece and through, you know, just reading and finding these amazing authors that are out there, like, um, like again, James Popham, um, we had, um, uh, you know, I'm, our book has been published with the ASCD. So I get a chance to rub elbows with some really amazing people. And back in the day when I was first teaching, I never thought I would be that interested in mm -hmm. assessment creation and helping teachers use the data to assess their impact. But it was just I was so very fortunate again to learn from John Hattie formative assessment has a very high effect and um, to see its value is something that sometimes schools don't stress enough because there's so many things on teachers plates that to me this would be one of the top three like we really have to have a good formative assessment system in their building mm -hmm. um, it, and, and it should prepare kids for a larger assessment but it shouldn't be too much for the teachers where they start thinking, when do I have time for this? That's the reason why sometimes we yes. don't get into it. Yeah. And these teachers' sure. time is completely blasted out. I mean, I'm always telling leaders that want me to come work with them on achievement teams and assessment. I'm like, listen, I want to come and I'm going to help you. But, you know, for every new initiative you ask teachers to implement, you should be taking three things off their plate. That way they feel like, okay, we have time or just mm -hmm. put them in timeout. But what happens is it's just another one under another one and another yeah. one. And I've learned something about teachers, Chrissy, like when it comes to things like you have to write more formative assessments and they ask, why do we have to do this? Mm -hmm. It's not because they're being unprofessional, what they're really worried about is when am I going to find the time to do this? And so it comes out like you think they're, they're being difficult, but they're like, we're up to our neck mm -hmm. right now with everything. So mm -hmm. um, anyway. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because as schools are trying to implement more formative assessments over, you know, throughout the year, um, it can be a real challenge to figure out where there's, those are going to go and, yeah. and how you're going to meet with your people in a timely manner, not only to mm -hmm. create them, but to look at them and then do something with that information or else it's pointless. It is exactly. And I think, again, I, I, I want, I'm so enthusiastic about it. You actually see the value. I know you can appreciate mm -hmm. it, but once we unlock unlock that learning for teachers about the yeah. how 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 amazing the assessments can be if they're written right and we're and we assess them correctly, uh, literally, teachers begin to feel more um, success, mm -hmm. and it's contagious. They want more. So the more we actually learn how to use this process, uh, whether it's a short cycle pre post or just a, just an assessment that's common among the grade level or the content area. Mm -hmm. So much value there. Yes. Um, where people can um, under understand that the 
the process was never designed to make it more difficult for you to be a teacher. It was to actually help you be more effective. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I think when I asked teachers, what's the reason to assess, what would be their top three things? And um, my top three reasons to give assessments is to evaluate our effectiveness as a teacher, uh, to provide feedback to students, and then to identify what the kids need. If you just keep those three things in mind, mm -hmm. then you have it. But you don't use them for grading. You don't use it to evaluate the quality of your curriculum. You won't use it to revise your goals. It's literally in any order you want. I mean, it could. It doesn't have to be one, two, and three. But to me, number one, just because of my visible back, visible learning background, would be to evaluate how much impact we're having. Mm -hmm. Then we give the feedback to the students and identify what they need. So, if you have that mindset, it's it's that's the way to get into to more assessments. But if it's just about grading, um, you probably won't be very successful with um, the way we're administering um, the assessments that we think should have. Um, the greatest impact. So again, you said it like there's there's summative in term informative. We've been finding the most success with teachers who invest in the formative. Mm -hmm. And um, I think they just become better consumers of how to create the assessments and then use the results. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in all of that, because I mean, I've seen that happen. You know, whenever I started out as a new coach, the campus I worked at did not have, they they'd started to give assessments just because that was the, the, it was a new principal the previous year. And that was the first thing she could get them. Like, this is part of what we're going to do. We're going to start to give right. common assessments, period. Mm -hmm. The quality wasn't there. They weren't super, you know, organized in terms of what they were teaching curriculum wise. So then it didn't always match. So it was a little all over the place, but she was like, we're trying to build a habit and we can make a habit better, but we can't do it well if we don't do it at all. <laughs> so we have to start mm -hmm. somewhere. And then they got used to sitting together in data meetings, looking at the assessment. And mm -hmm. over time, you know, my year, so that was the year before I got there. And then I was there for five years and I saw, you know, the way that we built assessments, the way that we understood them, the way that we used them. Teachers were like, okay, let's plan it in. We planned in the assessment date at the beginning of our planning. And then we, you know, worked backwards from that. We knew when we were going to be wrapping up our units and we knew what was going to be on that assessment because we had written it together. And that was such a huge change. And by the end of my time there, that was just a regular part of their teaching. They were used to it. They knew what was going to happen. They understood how to look at the data and pull it backwards and say, what does this mean about what we're doing and what we need to do for kids? And it was like a huge shift, but it takes time to get there. Yeah, It doesn't happen. I mean, even mm -hmm. the first two years, it's just such a change because like you said, teachers are, are barely treading water. So whenever we put anything new in place, it's like, oh, just a year of just getting used to it. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like. Well, and, and if you look at the, we have so much in common, well, we have time to do the research for teachers. Like what's the power of assessment? Mm -hmm. Teachers do not have time to go home at night and read a book about assessments. Like you said, they're treading water. They're doing the best they can. And so people like you and I can come in and support them and tell them that this is the actionable thing that can happen mm -hmm. in your class. And I think we should make it as easy as possible for them to give yeah. these assessments. So I have all kinds of templates and tools where it's just like, let's design it. But I just don't, I, I just don't think that um, teachers have an opportunity to read the most contemporary research about the value of assessments. So Absolutely. not that they wouldn't want to have time, 
I just think that look at all the things that are on their plate right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a, it's been challenging post COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, a lot of teachers are frustrated with the, with the slow progress kids are making. But again, this would be one strategy that could considerably accelerate student achievement. So mm-hmm. see how they, how we get into it. So whenever you talk about formative assessment with teachers, what are you what are you talking about with them? What are you doing to kind of help them understand the process? You mentioned some of the research and, you know, actual assessment writing. What other things do we need to be bringing to the table? Well, you know, it's funny. I never make any assumptions about Webb's depth of knowledge because sometimes I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just start saying things like, DOK, let's code your standard. Let's see how rigorous it is. And I had one really humble teacher come up to me in between sessions and say, Steve, you keep talking about DLK, what is that? And this is, what a great way to just come in and ask. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is why I never assume anything, Chrissy. Like I'll do a yeah. whole section on how to use, there's 57 hot verbs from Webb's depth of knowledge. Many times the teachers aren't really exactly sure how to use them. And so the thing we start off with is what is um, the way to determine the cognitive demand and rigor of whatever you're assessing. And we start there first and we can get people to be more comfortable with the DOK verbs than, than the assessment um, item writing guidelines are better. And like I said before, I've had so much opportunity to read what's really relevant, you know, when we get into it, there's a, just, just um, an amazing amount of information that you would have to just really focus. But I think I start off with levels of rigor first. We, there were many teachers like my age that started off with Bloom's taxonomy, Chrissy, which mm-hmm. is six domains. Yeah. yeah, I did. And then then in 2010, at least in California, my home state, when Common Core started kind of being assessed, when everybody mm-hmm. recognized, like, wait a second, this is going to DOK levels now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the difference between Bloom's and DOK is one's more about difficulty, one's more about complexity. Mm-hmm. But when I talk with teachers about formative assessments, we really want them to have a solid understanding of those four levels of verbs. What do they really mean? And then what are the items that go with that level? How would you assess those items? Um, the other thing when we talk about this is I show teachers a lot of samples of formative assessments that I've written for other clients. And why do, right away they see the value of these items. I mean, again, we give them really good item writing guidelines, but at the same time we show teachers like, even if your kids choose the wrong answer, you should be able to make some really good inferences because you put incorrect answers that would be common mistakes for kids. So they're Mm -hmm. all there by design. And you know, who's really good at is math teachers. They'll have multiple choice yeah, and they'll put in three different ways. They know the kids will miscalculate. Yes. And all of a sudden, they already know how to how to correct it, how to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the tools that we introduce. But I, I think the biggest thing for us is to make a compelling case. Why would you do this? And I think out of professional respect for teachers, Chris, me, Chrissy, I think we should tell them why before how. So anytime I do assessment training, we, we, we have to talk about the why first, give people a really compelling case to take a look at this. It's so funny you're bringing this up. Next Saturday, a week from today, I'm working with a district on a Saturday. They cannot meet any other time. Mm-hmm. And they want to learn more about writing assessments. And so, uh, you know, prepping for that, they're 
an amazing district with amazing teachers are coming in on Saturday. I know they're getting paid, not enough, but we're going to write them. We'll spend six hours that day and I'll show them how to write the assessment. At the end of that segment, they will have a product. It's a production day. Mm. So it's not just the theory of assessment. It's like, here's how to write one. Now go ahead and pick one of your standards and write seven to nine items. I love that. It's got to be relevant and useful or else what are they walking away with? They still have to go do yeah. all the work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they can, they have item banks, Chrissy. Well, that helps the other a lot. thing is like, yeah, I always tell people use your item banks. You don't have to start mm-hmm. from scratch. Just use the method that I'm showing you to determine mm-hmm. if those item bank items are really valid and reliable. I've seen really horrible written um, assessment items from purchased item banks. Yeah. So it lies. So, right. <laughs> yeah. And from so, even just student materials that are supposedly aligned to star or aligned to whatever, yeah. but they're really not. You look at it, you go, it's never assessed this way. It never has no. looked like this. And it doesn't even make sense to assess it in this way. And yeah. the thing is, is like, there's no, there's no quick fix. I have to tell my mm-hmm. clients again, like there are certain websites that don't screen the content very well, but they're for sale and teachers are looking for a quick purchase. I got to find yeah. an assessment. And those items haven't been vetted. That's these items look really nice. They have really cute elementary school font. Mm-hmm. They're very colorful with images. But when you look at the quality of those assessments, they've made almost every mistake you and I just talked about to avoid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When they're selling them yeah. and people are buying them up, I see them all the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, same. I used to have to rewrite a lot of questions and we would like tape over it with that white tape. And then I'd type (laughs) out and print out, you know, for the master copy, like what the proper questions should be. And it's ridiculous. And we, and how much money was spent on those items and who chose them. Right. Right. So, (laughs) but um, whether people are writing them and selling them or we buy them from um, a publisher, Mm -hmm. still, I think that teachers should be very good consumers about. Yes determining whether or not the assessments they're using are um, valid enough so they can make some pretty good inferences about the results. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not your... really... Yeah. They start working. Yeah. Cause then if, yeah. if not, you're sitting in a PLC, a data meeting with teachers and you're like, okay, well that, yeah, you're right. No, that one didn't make sense. No. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, you're right. There are two right answer choices for that one. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You could support either of those. <laughs> and it's just terrible. Um, yeah. And it's a big waste of everybody's time. And you wasted the kids time as well. Cause they took a test that meant nothing. And then they worried about it. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just a bad process. Oh. So what are, as you've worked with different grade levels and subject areas, what are some formative assessments that you've used? You talked a little about true false and matching. And I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there some other things that you've used that work well with different grades? Like I'm thinking of very early childhood, their assessments have to Mm -hmm. be developmentally appropriate. Yeah. The developmentally appropriate are usually with images, their visual assessments. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, when I work with kindergarten teams on short cycle assessments, sometimes those assessments may only have four items, but the teachers are showing the students how to select the best item, just circling it. Like they're images from the book, right? So they Mm -hmm. may not be able to read the question stem. The teachers of course read that to them, but they can, they can make, they can do things like compare and contrast with images and you know that's depth of knowledge level three that's pretty good for a kindergarten Mm -hmm. the other assessments we use especially for say the specialists like band or art or um 
Um, other non-traditional assessments is to help the teachers create authentic performance tasks where the kids perform the assessment as opposed to a paper pencil. Mm -hmm. So they have certain um, things they have to demonstrate, like especially in 3D art. I mean, they may not take a paper pencil test, but they will make or create something with a rubric. And then um, they can be assessed that way. And I feel like um, between very traditional formative assessment, but um, creating assessments that are based on performance tasks, you know, each task builds on the previous task. So they might do um, the first task, the second, the third and fourth. Well, they're leveling up from DOK one to two or three, wherever it goes. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's literally them creating something um, as opposed to a paper pencil assessment. So um, you can use those um, authentic performance tasks to, to gauge just as well. Plus, you can use that in lieu of paper pencil for kids who struggle with some um, comprehension and reading ability. They can still demonstrate proficiency verbally or through some sort of task. So it's really so many different options. But um, in lower primary, a lot of times the teachers automatically will um, assess things like letter recognition or number mm -hmm. recognition. And those are fine. They may even um, stay on reading for foundational skills. And I just try to gently nudge them and say, listen, those are all great things. You're going to assess them anyway. But there are standards in kindergarten where they do have to compare and contrast. Yes. Characters, settings, and events. That's a great assessment um, because they Absolutely. need to do that between now and their senior year. So usually when teachers ask me, well, what do I, how do I decide what do I want to assess? I'm like, well, if you have two targets you're looking at, pick the one that's more rigorous and assess that. So um, uh, I feel like lower primary, pre-K, TKK, they can still determine and tell you what's the same, what's different. Uh, and I think those are the ways that we could assess um, all kids. And so they have equal access to really high quality assessments. They get a chance to um, let the teachers know um, how much they know about those those topics. So um, the older they get, the more traditional the assessments are. Mm -hmm. Like um, could be paper, pencil, but I still like to have a variety of items on one assessment. Multiple choice, true, false, short, constructive response. Mm -hmm. Just have all three, right? That way that, um, let's say a teacher designs a big essay and the teacher and the students didn't study for a big three paragraph essay and that's all that's on the assessment. Well, then the whole assessment is, is scuttled because they don't know it. So I always put in other items for them to demonstrate proficiency in case they can't answer a mm -hmm. five point essay, but they still can demonstrate other things. So usually really good assessments, Chrissy, have a combination of matching, true, false, selective response, um, uh, fill in the blank, short answers and so forth. And then the teachers have a lot of really good information to make really good inferences. But, you know, I wouldn't say just do a 50 question true false. Mm -hmm. You know, you could have different items in there. And that's typically what we recommend as the kids get older, like giving them um, more than one way to demonstrate they know your content. Uh, and so um, sometimes the big mistake is just to have them essay stuff. But again, I mean, sometimes a student's senior year could be functionally over if they only were being assessed on something that large without any other items that they could demonstrate that they, they knew the material. So 
Yeah, such a great point <clears throat> because, yeah, you're scaffolding it at different levels in your instruction. Um, we would want mm-hmm. our assessment to have different levels as well so they could demonstrate understanding and we can see where it starts to break down. Yeah. Uh, so those are some of the, the things that I, um, you know, when we when we do the, the training, it's got to be so appealing to teachers that they would want to use it. So, again, mm-hmm. as I mentioned before, like, we provide a lot of templates, a lot of clarity, um, a lot of reasons why, and help um, teachers actually write um, the way they um, are explicit what the students have to do. I feel like the more explicit teachers are, um, they will get better results. We tell teachers that um, who teach older kids that if you really wanted clarity on an assessment item, you would specify the point value, right? The acceptable response length and how much time they have. Cause kids ask that every day. How much is this worth? Yeah. How much time do we have? Um, you know, um, how long is it supposed to be? So a lot of times with these short or extended constructive response, I think if we give them those th- three things, like, well, it's worth 20 points. It should be 200 to 300 words in length. And you have 20 minutes, go ahead and start, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's so suitable and specific that the kids will know exactly how to continue to move on with that, with that item. Yeah. You're telling them what's expected of them. Yeah. Which is always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. But my thing, Chrissy, is like, I think we should be employ. We should employ more questions that have shorter answers mm-hmm. rather than just a fewer questions with longer answers. Like I mentioned mm-hmm. before, because that's, better content sampling from Mm -hmm. them. And then um, we're trying to increase the chance that they actually do well by giving them um, those multiple opportunities. But if a kid hasn't really properly stuttered for for the content for one big three item essay test, then one third of that assessment is just really completely, as I mentioned before, scuttled. So trying to do better content sampling, then the teachers get a better idea what the kids actually know is just saying, well, they didn't know anything. Right. They probably do. It just was the way the items were formatted. Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense. Thank you so much yeah. for sharing everything that you have about formative assessment. I know this is something people are undertaking and it's a big one. Um, yeah. You have to, have, there are so many moving parts to make sure that it goes well. So I, I really appreciate mm-hmm. everything you shared today. Thank you. Yeah. I get now okay. to ask my favorite question. Um, it's, yeah. it's uh, what is your favorite thing right now? And it can be anything, a product, a TV show, anything you love. I'm going to start, I was prepared for this. So first of all, I'm going to start <laughs> off with the favorite, favorite book I'm reading today okay. that goes along with um, what you're talking about. So um, I'm a big fan of Karen Hess and Karen Hess oh, yeah. um, just put out a new book called Rigor by Design, Not Chance. I mean, if she is completely amazing. And if anybody was wondering how to take more actionable instruction through assessment, mm-hmm. this is the book. Again, it's it, people may not have time to read all of it, but it's the type of book that you can um, go to and find out more. So okay. it's, it's all about scaffolding and helping teachers design complex tasks. That's one thing I'm reading right now. I love it, right? It's helping me tremendously. And then non-education, we just um, brought home a brand new um, golden retriever puppy that I haven't surprised you haven't seen it running. Yeah, I haven't. No, very discreet. (laughs) But um, that has been amazing. We're dog people. 
we we had to put a, a, one of our other retrievers to sleep about six mm -hmm. months ago. And so we were waiting like, well, how long can we go without another retriever? Because we love the breed. So it's been a blast um, raising this little puppy. She's just so cute. <laughs> and then um, the other thing I'm really enjoying is just like the the time that I'm home now, I get back, I get to get back into a little bit more of my exercise routine. And I, um, I started doing spinning classes. Chrissy, are you aware oh, of these fun. classes? Yes, I am. Yeah, where uh -huh. you have the one caffeinated instructor in front of the class <laughs> with 20 people riding bikes. And when I took that, you know, there's a lot of sweat involved with spinning, Chrissy, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Like my arms hurt, my legs hurt, my thighs hurt. Uh, by the time I got those spandex bike shorts on, I missed the class. <laughs> believe it <laughs> i don't know if these jokes work oh for everybody gosh. out there oh, but I'm, I'm sure they'll get them because yeah that's i think that's a common experience <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's what i've been up to i'm gonna awesome. um just been enjoying we're we're um so grateful with our relationship with aacd so um things have been going pretty well <laughs> all right well great well where can people find you online to learn more just my name steve ventura.com Mm -hmm. and um or they can do a search for achievement teams but just my name stephenter.com and then they'll can see all the resources we have up there all right sounds good yeah good luck raising that puppy because those are a lot of work they are right now <laughs> lots of energy yeah tons all right coach that was the great steve ventura so much excellent information. And I love it whenever our, our guests get into the nitty gritty and talk about the specifics. He gave us so many things to think about as we are working with teachers and planning out what these assessments look like, how we're going to use them. I just thought it was excellent. And, you know, I, I guess I haven't talked about this in a while and I was really excited to have this conversation. <laughs> so I hope that that came through today. Next week, we're chatting with a coach in the field about how they can better use data and assessments with their teachers. And this is the one that I mentioned where they got the question about, um, well, what, why are we, why are we doing this whenever we have grades, right? Why do we have to use assessments whenever we already take grades? So we talk up a little bit about that and a little bit about some of the other things that they have had to overcome as they are working with data and assessments. If you are using assessments, regular frequent common assessments with your teachers, and you want to start having better conversations about them, you can go to buzzingwithmissb.com slash episode 171 and scroll down, grab the data bookmark because it has a series of questions on there that will help you have better dialogue with your teachers about their assessment results. So next week, again, you're going to join me for a coaching call where we problem solve a coach's work at school. And until then, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.